0: Good morning. Am I good? All right. You need me to talk? I'm really good. I'm really loud. How's that? We're doing better? We're getting there. All right. You'll figure it out. Uh, a few things as we begin. The title for my sermon, I think, is no good. I'm not sure that it's going to work for what I'm going to say today. You can title it. Send me your best title. Uh, send it to Dan. He's the one who puts it on the website. Um, one of the things that has been helpful to me recently uh, when I've been distracted in my Bible reading time has been listening to an audio Bible while reading the scriptures. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just saying that to you. Perhaps you've been struggling in your Bible reading time. I've been greatly helped by that recently. I commend that to you. There are lots of free apps there. And I was reminded this week as well uh, that one of the most helpful ways that I can uh, Continue to supplement my scripture reading time is to take small books that I've been hoping to get to and just slowly read them. So I set arbitrary page limits, sometimes five pages, sometimes ten, sometimes three, or just a section. So if you're somebody here today and there are lots of books and you see us handing out lots of books and you go by the Connection Center and you see new books up there and you always think, I'd love to get to those, or I've taken a lot of those, but I haven't read any of those, one helpful thing. Can do is just set an arbitrary page limit. There, there is nothing sub-Christian about saying I'm not going to finish the chapter or the section, and you just read until that section is done, and you close it, and then you will be surprised how many books throughout the year, along with your scripture reading that you will read. And so I'm doing that right now. The congregational letter that you got this week is me doing that with Charles Spurgeon's book, Only a Prayer Meeting. Uh, If you don't have that book, you can get a copy. If you can't afford a copy, come see me. I'd love to help you uh, in your book reading endeavors there. But I just want to encourage you. I found those things helpful. So I just want to share that with my congregation. And then finally, uh, as we turn to 1 Peter, I want to actually, Abigail, bring me my program, please. She's been my assistant. She reminded me that my microphone was not on, and now she's bringing me my program. Thank you. Um, If you would just turn with me to page nine, if you have a program, or Josh, could you put up verse two? Sorry, hold on. Verse three of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Thank you, Josh. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. As we're studying 1 Peter and we keep coming back again to suffering, one of the things that I know is true in your life as is true in my life and I think the, the readers here in 1 Peter experience, this is all pre-sermon, is that, that all is not well. That many of you have believed, you believe him, but not all is well. There's suffering in your life right now. There's been suffering in your life in the past. If there's not suffering in your life right now or there hasn't been what you consider to be significant suffering in the past, there are perhaps people around you who are suffering in a variety of different ways. Some of those are the result of their own sinful decisions. Sometimes those are results of sinful decisions of other people. Sometimes we experience suffering in our own lives because of our belief in Christ. It's harder at work than we intended it to be. I know that many of our teachers feel that. I know many of our uh, nurses and those in the medical field feel that right now in a world that's confusing. Their faith makes it hard for them. It's hard to, to continue in the faith. And we sing a song like this and we come to a book like this and we are continually going through passages about suffering and we think, all's not well. Why isn't it well? I pray that today that we would just address this directly and remind ourselves that the scripture has categories for those who are suffering and that you can be genuinely Christian while suffering greatly in this life and still be walking faithfully with the Lord and perhaps that's many of us in this room today so if you have your bible and I'll invite you to turn with me to first peter first peter chapter 4 if you're a guest with us we've been studying through first peter first peter is where we've been for the last several months we find ourselves now in chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, but I want to continue to remind all of us that we're in a section that goes from chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself, were here speaking to us today. And as I read, if you're the type of person who likes to write or underline in your Bible, I want you to circle or underline every time you see a reference to live or living in this passage. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Father I pray for your help now in this time that you would help me may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight and useful to your people today I pray that you would help all of us as we turn our attention to your word now that you would give us ears to hear that you would give us eyes to see that you would write the eternal truths of the word of god on our hearts that For those of us who are believers, we would be encouraged. And perhaps for those of us who are here today who are not yet Christians, that today would be the day of salvation for us. That the good news of the gospel would break open the hard hearts of unbelievers and cause them to be born again and encourage the saints that are here. Father, we ask that you would build us up in a holy faith. We have prayed for this already in this service. We have sung about this in this service. We have read scriptures about this, asking that we would be a sanctified people as we've paid attention to Old and New Testament readings. And even now, we long that you would use the sufferings of our life, the distinctly Christian sufferings of our life, to mold us into a people that we could not be without them. And that you would help us to trust that you are good when we are afflicted with them. And we ask all of this in the name of our God, who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Afkeen grew up in a devout Muslim family. His dad was very involved in the Iranian community, so involved that when he was two years old, his family moved from where he lived in the United States to Iran, where his parents were from. But when he was six, the Islamic revolution of the late 70s hit the country, and his father, who was a doctor with a lot of means, actually moved his family to Texas. And it was there that he was taught the five pillars of Islam, and he was regularly told that if he would do them to the best of his ability, that he might be able to go to heaven. As he transitioned to school, because he spoke Farsi and not English, his parents got him a tutor to teach him English, someone who would come and actually read books to him every day of the week so that he might learn how to speak in the native language. But in God's providence, his tutor just happened to be a Christian. After a few years, when he was in the second grade, that very same tutor said to him, Afshin, I want to give you the most important book that you'll ever read in your life. And she handed him a small New Testament and asked him to promise that he would hold on to it until he was older. About 10 years later, when he was in high school, he used the Lord's name in vain while he was playing basketball with some friends. And a guy on the court just yelled out to him, hey, that guy, Jesus, that you just spoke about, he's my God. Having been raised as a Muslim and being taught that Jesus was simply a prophet, He just assumed that the guy was out of his mind, but the statement kept nagging him and bothering him, so a few days later, he went to his closet, and he found that New Testament at the bottom, and he began to read it. Every day, he read it under the covers in his bed with a flashlight on so his parents wouldn't see what he was doing. Then one day, he got to the book of Romans, and the third chapter changed his life completely forever. He read about a righteousness that comes apart from what we do for God. A righteousness that God actually gives to his people as a gift that is received by faith. And he was struck by what the scripture said in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, which says that there is a righteousness that comes to all who believe. He had thought and had been taught that because he was born a Muslim, he would always be a Muslim. Muslim people were born Muslims. Christian people are born Christians. Hindu people are born Hindus. And you are what you are because of where you were born and what your parents teach you. But this verse said that this righteousness was for anyone, for anyone who would believe, from every ethnicity. It didn't matter where they came from or what their parents taught them. A few weeks later, he came to faith in Christ. The implications of that commitment soon became evident to Afshin when his dad found out and wanted to know what was going on. And it was in that moment but even as a young man, he had a decision to make. And he said, Dad, I'm a Christian. To which his dad replied, Afshin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. Every parent in the room, I just want you to imagine saying that to your child. And every child in the room, I want you to imagine, who, whether you have parents or not, whoever you consider to be the most important figure in your life, the most motherly or fatherly figure in your life. They simply just looked at you and said, I no longer identify with you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. In an interview decades later, he said, everything in my flesh wanted to say, forget it. I'll be a Muslim. I didn't want to lose a relationship with my dad, so... Even I was surprised when I immediately replied and said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, then I choose Jesus. If I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. To which his father said, I disown you and walked away. First Peter was written to people like Afshin, people who are suffering for their faith in Christ. Not suffering persecution from governing authorities, but from friends, from neighbors, from family members who were upset that they were following Christ and no longer following their former manner of life. Perhaps many of us in this room can actually identify with this today. Your faith in Christ, your Christian beliefs, The fact that you identify with Jesus and are a member of a local church have actually created tension for you and your family. It's made it difficult for you among your neighbors. It's made it hard for you around your friends. In fact, you have begun to lose the acquaintances that you once had because of your faith in Jesus. They simply can't grasp the necessity for a commitment like yours to Christ. They don't understand the ethical choices that you make. They don't see any of the rationale for a belief in a resurrected, formerly dead man who is now to be worshiped on Sundays and changes the way that you live. Why you can't simply stay home when they come in town because you have a commitment to someone else, Jesus Christ. Peter writes for such people, people like you, people like me, People like all of us who, because of our faith in Christ, are alienated and ostracized and overlooked and mistreated and maligned and reviled and slandered and looked down upon as Neanderthals and foolish and stupid and illogical and irrational and bigoted because of our hope in Christ. And Peter says, the commitment to Christian suffering reveals a new way of life. The commitment to Christian suffering reveals a commitment to a new way of life, a godly life, and living a godly life will entail a resolve to suffer. Living a godly life will actually be resisted. Living a godly life will be rewarded. Notice first, living a godly life will entail a resolve to suffer. I want you to look with me again in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore, now you can circle that therefore, and you can just draw back up in your Bible, or you can write beside it, 3, 18 through 22. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You could look at verse 1, and you could almost restructure it a little bit to make it a little easier for you at the main point of what Peter is saying. Go to about the middle of the verse. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking since Christ suffered in the flesh. That's what Peter's point is. In light of Jesus' death, descent, resurrection, and ascension that he's just told us about in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22... Believers, Peter tells us, are to actually arm themselves. It's a military metaphor. They're to take up weapons for battle. They're to prepare for action. They are to prepare for a fight. Weapons that prepare them for a war in which both discipline and determination are needed. In the Christian life, we need both discipline, spiritual disciplines, discipline in our pursuit of Christ, and we need determination because there are so many moments in the Christian life when it seems that the easiest thing to do, the right thing to do, would be to just give up, quit following Christ, stop speaking about Christ, stop proclaiming Christ, stop being so hard-lined about Christ. And so he says, discipline and determination are needed in the midst of this Christian life. We are to prepare for battle. This life is war. It is going to be hard. But careful readers, notice that the weapons that Peter speaks of aren't quite the weapons that we would expect. And there, there may be not even the weapons that we would want. We would like something that really just kind of annihilates all of the enemies. It would take everybody out. We want the argument that when we give that argument, it defeats them every single time. We want the argument that is always prepared in every single moment to put someone on their back so that we can be over them triumphant. But Peter says believers are to prepare for a life of war by arming themselves, verse one, with a way of thinking. There's a way of thinking that actually prepares them, that arms them for suffering since Christ suffered in the flesh. How they to prepare themselves for suffering is to remember what he just told them in chapter three, verses 18 through 22. These believers will be prepared to live when they arm themselves with a way of thinking that focuses on the sufferings of the Savior because the sufferings of Christ teach them that suffering is inevitable. And he has said it everywhere throughout his letter. Though he was innocent, he suffered. He committed no sin, chapter 2, verse 22. Though he spoke truth, he suffered. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, chapter 2, verse 22. Though he never retaliated, he suffered. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return, chapter 2, verse 23. Though he believed God... He suffered. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Chapter 2, verse 23. Perhaps you're here today and you think, I'm innocent. Why am I suffering? I'm telling people the truth. Why am I suffering? I'm not treating people the way they're treating me. Why am I suffering? I believe God. Why am I suffering? Friends, if that describes you, you are in good company today and you have an all-sufficient Savior who knows exactly what it's like to be going through what you're going through today. Brothers and sisters, the reason we should expect to suffer is that Christ suffered in the flesh. His sufferings are an example for us in our suffering. They are what we are to look to to not only learn how to suffer but to teach us in every given moment how we are to live our lives and at the same time They are both unique and unrepeatable. They're an example for us, how to live, how to speak, how to act, how to respond. But they are also unique and unrepeatable for he bore our sins in his body on the tree, chapter two, verse 24. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, chapter three, verse 18. Jesus' death paid the penalty for sin so that you and I don't have to pay it. His death paid the penalty for sin because you and I could not pay it. His death secured a definitive final forgiveness for you and for me and as Afshin learned, for all who would believe. And through his death, through the forgiveness of sins achieved by his sacrifice, there is a new relationship with God that is established. You and I actually now have access to God and enjoy an unhindered relationship with him because Christ suffered in our place and our sins have been atoned for. Recently, I was reading through the book of Leviticus, and as I'm reading through the book of Leviticus, I was just struck afresh with the fact that the priests were only able to go into the holy place once a year. And the striking contrast for the believer as we approach God daily, not only when we were reading the scripture, but as we approach him in prayer, we come unhindered. We come to him directly. We do not have to wait. We have direct access to God the Father through Christ the Son because he has atoned for our sins. But perhaps you're here today. You're here and you're not a Christian. We want you to know that this is what we call the gospel. This is what we call the good news. These are the glad tidings of deliverance, as the psalmist says. It is a message that we actually remind ourselves of each and every week. We remind ourselves that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's a message that we are proclaiming to you today. We're proclaiming it to you in the songs that we sing, in the scriptures that we read, and what we're studying as it's being preached right now, And the prayers that we pray remind ourselves of this, and we proclaim to you that you must repent. You must repent and believe. You must turn away from sin, and you must trust in Jesus Christ by faith. The scripture is very clear. You must confess that you are a sinner and ask God to forgive you of your sins because of Christ. And friend, if you do that, the scripture assures us that God will meet you with mercy, that he will meet you with forgiveness. He will forgive you of your sin and he will justify you by faith. He will send you the promised Holy Spirit and he will give you hope of everlasting life. Peter tells us and tells these readers, these first century Christians, over and over and over again, Jesus suffered in the flesh, the righteous for the unrighteous, for the purpose of being able to bring us to God And in so doing, he declares to all of us, come to him by faith. Come to him by faith. Come to him by faith. So why are we so slow to come to him? Believer, why are you so slow to approach him? Unbeliever, why are you so reticent here today? The fear of what other people will think of you? The pride in the fact that they might think that you're already a Christian? The fact that your name is already on a church roll prohibits you from repenting and trusting Christ and telling other people, I wasn't a Christian after all. Friend, come to Christ. Let nothing hold you back. Peter speaks to these people who are downcast and downtrodden, who are tired and worn out by the world. He reminds the believer and he calls to the unbeliever and he says, Come to Christ. It's the same message for all. Come to Christ. Turn to him and be saved." Friend, if you're here and you have questions about that, about what you said and you'd like to learn more, I would love to speak with you. I'd be glad to talk to you. You can come to that tunnel. I'll be standing there for several minutes after the service. But Perhaps you're one of those people who actually don't come by the tunnel and I see you leave through other exits. You'd rather not talk to the guy in the coat at the back. That's fine. You don't have to speak with me today. Here's another invitation for you. Reach underneath the seat in front of you and grab the Bible that's underneath the seat in front of you and take that home with you and begin to read the scripture. Look to the table of contents. Find the Gospel of John and begin to read the Gospel of John and just ask yourself a very simple question. What is John teaching us about Jesus Christ? And what is John teaching us about me or us as humans? And then what must I do when I learn about who Jesus Christ is and who I am? And as you're reading through the Gospel of John and you eventually want to talk, just shoot an email. I would love to speak with you about what you're learning. Peter tells us the reason believers are to arm themselves with the intention to suffer is that verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that is a confusing phrase for sure, but it becomes a lot clearer when we look down at verse 4. So I want everybody to drop their eyes down there with me to verse 4 now. And if you were one of those people who closed your Bible, open it back up. The sermon's always more enjoyable when you pay attention. Verse 4, with respect, respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. The point in verse one is not that believers who suffer have attained to sinless perfection. We reject that outright. There is no such thing as a perfect Christian. This church is not a perfect Christian church. I am not a perfect Christian pastor. There are not perfect Christian members here. There will never be a perfect Christian member here because the only perfect person to ever live is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are all striving to get to the new life so that we can be remade in his image. But Peter does say the believers who do not join their unbelieving family and friends and neighbors and the sins that characterized their life before their relationship with Jesus show that they have actually conquered sin, triumphed over sin by faith. They have, verse one, ceased from sin. They have so radically broken with sin, by ceasing to participate in the sinful activities of unbelievers and their former life, and instead have willingly endured the criticisms that come from such a decision. Fundamentalist, loser, bigot, and that their commitment to Christian suffering, according to Peter, reveals that they are those who are participating in a new way of life, a godly life, a life that is not yet perfect, but is remarkably different from their former way of life In the lives of unbelievers. It is remarkably different from the way that they used to think and the words that they used to speak and the actions that they used to do. So radically different that people see and know that there is a difference. A way of life that is prepared, verse 2, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Whether you live for another hour or another day, another week or another month, Another year or another decade, if you are a Christian, you are to turn away from a life of sin, and you are to arm yourselves with a way of thinking that actually prepares you to live and to suffer while doing the will of God. The way that we think prepares us to live in this world. That's why we have so many scripture readings. That's why we read, sing the songs that we sing. That's why we give so much attention to the sermon. That's why we remind ourselves what our confession of faith says. That's why we give out Christian books. That's why we encourage you to participate in the life of the body of Christ and do things like the academy class, so that as you arm yourselves with the new way of thinking, you are prepared to live and to suffer and to throw off the former manner of life. And what is the will of God according to Peter? How are you able to do the will of God if you don't know what the will of God is? Peter's been telling us throughout the entirety of his letter. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. Be holy in all of your conduct. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why is he admonishing believers? Because he knows that the propensity is for them to act unlovingly toward one another. Love one another earnestly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't just think things and live a certain way, but proclaim the gospel message. There is an evangelism in the way that you live. There is an evangelism in the way that you use your words, and both have to go together for Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Don't live like you used to live live an honorable life so that they see that you're different so that they know that you're different so that they hear that you're different 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13 be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution don't just live that way around them live that way in the society 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 be subject to your masters 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 be subject to your own husbands 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 live with your wives in an understanding way 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The unity of mind that Peter is speaking of is not agreement on politics. I know that many of you disagree. We are aware of that. The unity of mind that Peter is speaking about is not agreement on fiscal policy in the United States. We know that many of you disagree. Peter's not talking about that. The unity that Peter is talking about is the confession of faith in Jesus Christ, a unity that supersedes what you think in those moments, that actually binds us together so that we can say, we disagree on this, we know that we might have voted differently here, but we're both still Christian because we trust Christ. And because of that, we're able to come together and co-belligerent for the gospel and treat one another with dignity and respect. I don't need you to agree with one another on foreign policy. I don't care if you ever know what anybody else's foreign policy is. We need you to agree with one another on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're here today and you've been looking down on your brothers and sisters because they don't agree with you. Repent. Repent of divisiveness. Repent of harboring bitterness. Repent of the disunity. Or, frankly... Find a place where there are a bunch of people who agree with you. But I'm not quite sure it'll be a better place. First Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Suffer for righteousness' sake. You want to know the will of God? It's everywhere in 1 Peter. Brothers and sisters, I wonder which one of those verses really hit home for you today. I wonder which one of those caused you to think, I need to renew my commitment and resolve afresh to live according to the will of God. Fellow believers, you are to be resolute in your commitment to doing the will of God. That does not mean that martyrdom is mandatory, but it does mean that there must be a willingness to suffer so that you may no longer live the remaining time in the flesh, the rest of your life, for human passions, but the will of God. The world wants you to live for human passions. It promotes human passions to you, to me, to our kids, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our colleagues, to our coworkers. Peter says, don't live for that. Live for another world. Living a godly life will entail a resolve to suffer, a resolve because it will be difficult. Notice second, living a godly life will be resisted. Look with me again in verse three, please. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, if you want, you can just write there in the margin. It's actually the will of the Gentiles. He's contrasting verse two and verse three. The will of God, the will of the Gentiles. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter now explains why believers should live the rest of their lives for the will of God. They've already spent a sufficient amount of time in the past carrying out, verse 3, the will of the Gentiles. And as he contrasts the past with the present, which is very important for Peter, he wants us to see there was an old way of life, there's a new way of life. There was a life before Christ, there's a life that's in Christ. There was the will of the Gentiles, now there is the will of God. There are the things that you used to do, and there are the things that you are now to do, and it should be obvious to all that something has changed. If nothing has changed, then perhaps nothing has changed, But something must have changed in the way that we live in the world and interact with the world, the desires of our lives, because they are committed to a new way of life and are now members of the new people of God, the true Israel of God, the church of God. Friends, one of the things we regularly remind ourselves is that as the church we are to be distinct. And part of the reason, one of the things that hinders our evangelism most of all is that Christian people do not live like Christian people. They speak the right Christian message and live the wrong way. And the unbelieving world looks into the church and says, I don't want any of that. Your message sounds great. Your life looks phony. I can get that elsewhere. So Peter says, the true Israel of God, the new people of God, are to live distinctly Christian lives. You're not Gentiles. You're no longer pagans. Now, everybody in this room is not Jewish, I think. So we typically we say, all right, we're the Gentile people. But Peter wants us to see, you're no longer Gentiles. You're no longer non-Christian people. You are Christian people. So there's no more time to live the way that you used to live. Time is short. The days are evil. Time is running out. As we'll see in verse 7 next week, the end of all things is at hand. So, verse 3 throw off the sins of the old way of life. And he gives us six things in this passage. And you're gonna notice, you can go read it this afternoon, but if you read verses seven through 11 and you wanna be prepared for next week, there are six things that he gives us down there as well. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Believers, Peter tells us, are to live holy lives that are distinct from the world, that are remarkable for their devotion to God in Jesus Christ because as believers refrain from evil desires, they demonstrate the new life that is theirs in Christ and that they now enjoy. As they restrain themselves, they demonstrate the new life. Brothers and sisters who call themselves Christians in the room are the passions that rule unbelievers, characteristic of your lives are the sexual sins and the wild drinking parties and the idolatrous living of non-Christian characteristics of your lives. Peter says that the sins that mark people as Gentiles must be absent from those who identify as Christians. Period. Full stop. That was true in the first century. So why do we have such a hard time telling so-called Christians that they must stop sinning in the 21st century? What I mean is that Peter has no problem saying, Christians must stop living like non-Christians. But we say, that's really harsh. He expects too much. The church expects too much. You can't tell people that they can't do that. I mean, they're only human That's how everybody lives. Peter has no category for that way of living. Peter says, you must stop sinning in the ways that characterized your non-Christian life or you're not a Christian. The grace that saves you is the same grace that helps you throw off sin. The grace that saves you It's the same grace that helps you put sin to death. And if you can't put sin to death, then you haven't been saved by grace. The church is most loving when it tells people of the grace that saves and it holds its Christians accountable to the grace that kills sin. Peter empowers the church to help purify the church so that the gospel witness of the church would be radiant for the world. So why are we so slow to tell our so-called Christian friends or so-called Christian fellow members or so-called Christian family members that that cannot characterize your life? It seems to me a purely modern phenomena, a uniquely American phenomena that seems to indicate to people that it's too demanding to expect a Christian ethic from Christian people. But Christians no longer share the values and aspirations of the unbelieving world, according to Peter. Their lives have been so radically upended by the gospel that their family and their neighbors and their friends are, verse four, surprised or think it's strange that they do not join them and no longer participate with them in the life that they used to live. They think it's so strange and so odd that they malign them. Now, I want you to just try to think for a minute of what he's listed here for us, the living and sensuality. And just imagine what people would be saying. You know, you have a really antiquated sexual ethic. That's not how things are in the 21st century. Things are different. Passions. I'm only human. I can't stop myself. I can't stop and discipline myself not only from sexual passions, but from gluttony, overeating, and overexercising because I care more about my body than I care about Christ. From drunkenness. What are you, some kind of teetotaler? You're no fun at all. Orgies. My sexuality is my decision, and your sexuality is your decision. You decide how you want to live, I'll decide how I'm going to live. Drinking parties. What are you, some fuddy-duddy? Just live a little. Lawless idolatry. God doesn't care how I worship him. Imagine the type of world that you live in and know that that was true in the first century. People saying the same type of things as Christians began to live distinctly. So they, verse four, malign you. They revile you. They make fun of you. They question you. They want to know why are you so different, and then they they alienate you. They stop texting you. They ostracize you. They don't invite you anymore. They mistreat you. They make fun of you. They fire you because they don't like you. But verse five, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and dead. Now, I want us to think for a moment here why Peter reminds these believers of this. Judgment for Peter here is for believers. We typically think that, that the doctrine of God's wrath, the judgment of God, is something that we use to scare unbelievers so that they repent. Or that the judgment of God is something that we hold before unbelievers so that they are aware that their sin will result in God's judgment. That's true. We shouldn't scare them, but we should remind them that judgment is coming. But that's not how Peter uses the doctrine of God's judgment here. Peter holds the doctrine of God's judgment before believers, and he sets it on the table before the believers because he wants them to see. The doctrine of God's judgment of sin It's important for you to consider because you're going to think when you suffer, they're getting away with it. God doesn't see. Injustice reigns. It's not fair. It's too high a cost. He doesn't see what's happening to me. But Peter says, no, uh, They won't get away with it. God does see, and you need to be comforted. You need to be comforted and encouraged. You need to be comforted because you need to know God does see, and he will judge that sin. And you need to be encouraged that living a distinctly Christian life is actually the very thing that is heaping up judgment on them and is putting them in a position where they either must respond in repentance or they will go to the Christless eternity that is before them. Peter wants these believers to see that present circumstances will not have the last word. For those of you who are suffering in any way for your Christian faith, because you are adhering to the principles of Christ, Peter says, it will not have the last word. It will not have the last word in this life or in the next life. Those who live for evil human desires now, who do the will of the Gentiles, who revile and slander and mock and mistreat and alienate and ostracize and overlook and harm believers now, will most certainly be judged by God on the last day. They will be accountable to him. So take heart, do not give up, persist in the faith, continue to fight the good fight because he wants them to see that the main point is that they should hold fast and not quit and not give up. Why are so many of our Christian songs like the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast? Reminding us, keep the faith, keep the faith. What do all of you need one another to do this week to remind one another, keep the faith. Don't quit when your husband treats you like that. Don't quit when your children respond to you like that. Don't quit when your boss says that to you. Don't quit when your neighbors reject you. Don't quit when they mock you and make fun of you. Keep the faith. If you lose your job, we'll be there with you. Keep the faith. If you lose your family, keep the faith. We are reminding one another, keep the faith. That is exactly what Peter is doing. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith. faith. And he wants them to see that their perseverance matters because those who practice evil will be condemned. Suffering makes us think that God will not judge. Peter knows that. So he says, God will judge. Living a godly life will entail a resolve to suffer. Living a godly life will be resisted by the unbelieving world. Notice third, living a godly life will be rewarded. Look with me at verse six, please. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. There's lots we could say about this verse. If you want to, you can write 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, beside verse 6. Go get a study Bible if you have one. If you don't, look online. The ESV Study Bible is free online. That's a good way to survey some of the views. But I'm going to just present a view to you in just a moment, and I'm not going to survey all of the views. The other views are good for your reading, but I think most of them are wrong. Peter addressed the situation of believers who have believed the gospel. This is the greatest critique of unbelievers in verse 6. You've believed the gospel, but then you die. And the unbelieving world says, ha-ha, you're dead. What good did your faith in Jesus do for you? I'm alive, and I'm living the way that I want to live, and you're dead. Who knows whatever it is you're doing? That is the great critique that he's answering here for them. You've died physically, and now they're being mocked, but he says unbelievers view this as this great critique, but they are wrong. Peter reminds us that death, just like their reviling doesn't have the last word, death does not have the last word, which is exactly the thing he reminded us in chapter three, verses 18 through 22. It looked like death had the last word for Jesus, but it didn't. Death, descent, resurrection, ascension, or death, Descent, resurrection, and ascension. His exaltation here. It does not have the last word for Jesus, and it does not have the last word for believers. A similar destiny awaits them. They will be raised, although you're judged in the flesh the way people are. You died. You might live in the spirit the way God does. You are raised. The sphere of the dead, the sphere of resurrection, there are these two spheres here. They can critique you all they want, but there is something that is before you. There's suffering in this life, but there is glory for the believer. Death does not have the last word. The difficulties of the present are only temporary. There is a future hope for believers, and He is constantly holding it out to them because He knows that their suffering will cause them to think, I'm never gonna get there. It's not real after all. God's not gonna deal with the unbeliever, He's not gonna judge the wicked. But as he holds it out, he reminds them it will be suffering, then glory, and never get them confused. That's not novel to this church. We say that all of the time. But when we're in the midst of suffering, it's hard to believe that and remind ourselves of that. Suffering, then glory, pain, then life, death, then resurrection, the cross, then the crown. Many of you have suffered. Suffering is hard. It is really hard when you're suffering as a Christian. It is very disorienting then. Because we think, I'm doing all of the right Jesus things. And yet it's hard. Why Why can't it be good? It seems good for everybody else. Peter had a church full of people just like you. And he encourages them to persist. A few points of application. God rules even during our suffering. Drop down to verse 11. Notice what he says, the very end of verse 11, how he concludes this section and the next. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. In the midst of a section where he is teaching them about suffering, he concludes it and says, to him belong glory and to him belong dominion. He rules in the midst of your suffering, and he will be glorified through your suffering. This life is not about not doing, second application. This life is about living. For those of you who do write in your Bible, you saw that there are multiple references to live or living in this passage. One of the things that Peter wants us to see is that the Christian life is not about a bunch of things that we should not do. It is about thinking a certain way so that we do certain things, reminding us of what he's already told us. The good deeds of believers are intended for mission. We are to live, to do, to act, to think and pray, to think and preach, to think and live so that we might live a certain way in front of other people. Friends, live the Christian life and live the most free life the world has ever known. People forgiven by God. That is the wonder of our confession and assurance every week. Though you should be judged by God, you have been forgiven by God, and you are now set free to live a distinctly Christian life in the world. You can be the happiest people on planet Earth because God rejoices in you. So why are we so downcast? God rejoices over us live, live to the fullest. Third, though suffering causes us to question the love and justice and goodness of God, the judgment of God reminds us that our suffering is not in vain. Our suffering is not in vain. It will not be wasted. There is a huge difference between being a follower of Christ and merely giving mental assent to the truths about Jesus. The call of Christ isn't simply believe all of the right things about Jesus. What does Jesus say when he's on the seashore there? Follow me. Live this way. Not think all of these things. Follow me and let your life be defined by losing everything to gain everything. When we lose our lives, God will leverage our lives for his glory and for others to know Jesus. Friends, there is no other joy that is greater than this. Ashfin learned what it meant to be a follower of Christ when he had to lose his father to follow Jesus. But he also learned firsthand that when you lose your life, you find your life. One final illustration from the Old Testament for us. David... In the midst of his sin, found himself at a place where he was about to worship God. But his sin cost him greatly, and it cost the people of Israel great, greatly. And there at the threshing floor of Aruna, perhaps you might remember the story. He is there, and he's ready to give it all to the king. But what does David say? I will not give the Lord that which cost me nothing. Friends, does your Christian life cost you nothing? What are you paying for your Christian life? You lose it all to gain it all so that others might know that there's a life to live. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to lose so that we might live, to die so that we might rise again. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a holy people I thank you for this church. And I thank you for our collective covenant commitment to these principles. But I pray that you would help me as a pastor to be a more faithful Christian man. And I pray that you would help these people, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to live more distinctly Christian lives for the good of others. We pray, Father, that you would remind us of what we learned here in 1 Peter, that though we lose everything in this life, we gain everything in the next. And Father, I pray for those who are suffering in particular, as a Christian in the midst of their Christianity, for their Christianity, that you would comfort them today, that their very presence here among the believers would be a reminder to them that they are not alone, that you have not forgotten them, that you have not forsaken them, That as they are faithful as wives and husbands and children, as members, as colleagues and co-workers, that you and your mercy are honored and are meeting them in their weakness, laying out for them joy forevermore. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?